Genesis chapter 28, the first nine verses. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padanaram unto Laban, son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take him a wife from thence, and that he blessed him, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan blessed not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebuchadnezzar, to be his wife. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up to us, your word, even Christ, that we might see the gospel therein. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is A High Ransom. So having said that, you ought to know that this is going to be about Christ, and that's where I endeavor to take it. But um, before we get there, well, part of the whole process, because we see Christ everywhere we go in the scripture by God's grace, and my desire is that we would see him again this morning. I want to consider a couple of things from these uh, nine verses that we read this morning, and I want to talk a little bit a wife about a wife for Jacob, and that will be in the context of Jacob, who is an example and typifies the saint, and also how Jacob is a type of Christ. So we'll, kind of, we'll consider the context of uh, him uh, being sent to take a wife from the context of how he represents us and how he represents um, Christ himself. And then we're going to talk about uh, the affirmation that the blessing of God conferred upon Abraham would be conferred upon um, Jacob, that it would be his. So first speaking about Jacob, uh, about him taking a wife. Um, Now we have seen this many times in Scripture. The Bible repeats itself many times about uh, some basic principles, and all of those have to do, of course, with the gospel. And so because God repeats it in his word, We'll repeat it from the pulpit because God obviously knows that we need to hear these things time and time again, that we would take comfort in the things that Christ has done for us. So we've seen this many times through scriptures, and we'll continue to see it all the way through the Bible up to and including in the New Testament where simple and straightforward language is set before us here where God says that we should not be unequally yoked together. It's that same principle that we've talked about from the beginning. And it takes its root all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, where God says that like kind begets like kind. And if like kind beget like kind, there is an implication or certainly an inference that when like kind come together, they will beget something that is in their image and likeness. Like kind beget like kind. So simply stated, as sheep come together and beget sheep, and goats come together and beget goats, 
Christians should marry each other with the hope that by glorifying God in their marriage and raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they, by God's grace and the preaching of the gospel, will beget other Christians in their house. In obedience to this basic principle and appreciating what God has done in his life and what he has no doubt seen in the peoples amongst whom he lives, Isaac directs Jacob to do that which his father did for him in his life. And so he directs Jacob, Isaac directs Jacob to seek a wife from his mother's house with the charge in particular that he would not seek a wife from amongst the daughters of the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites, we know, were an ungodly people, and Scripture says in principle, they will endeavor to turn your heart away from the true and living God. They will endeavor to turn your heart away from the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And so he understands this basic principle and that God has chosen a people for himself that does not include the Canaanites. It does not include his half-brother Ishmael, and it does not include his own son Esau. Now, when you think about that from um, Isaac's perspective, I hope you can appreciate that that's a very sobering thought on two accounts. On the first account, it's an appreciation of the great blessings that God has in store for his elect, for those whom he has elected unto salvation. And in Isaac's case, it would be that which applies to him, and that which applies to his wife, and that which applies to his son, um, Jacob. Now, knowing what those blessings are, because he appreciates and understands them, that they and you, and you know Isaac and his, and his wife and his son, Jacob, will have... Um, eternal life. They will live forever. They will have a loving relationship in eternity, in glory with the Lord. Um, They will live and have and enjoy glorified bodies in heaven where there are no more tears and no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the scripture says that our deacon read this morning that the former things shall have all passed away. Isaac appreciates that, and so this is a wonderful blessing for him to um, apprehend in his heart about what's in store for him, what's in store for his father, what's in store for his wife, and what's in store for one of his sons. However, on the second account, it is also a grief that I think every Christian can appreciate. It's a heartbreak, fearing that God has excluded some from eternal life and all of those attendant blessings. Every Christian has people in their family that they fear for that they will not receive the blessings of God, but they rest their hope in Christ. And so he can appreciate um, that um, Esau has been excluded. I mean, God has made it clear to him that one would be blessed and the other would not because he conferred that blessing on his two sons um, himself. So he can understand that his son, or I should say, he has to bear this burden on his heart, that the son that he loves, Scripture specifically says that Isaac loved Esau, though he loved him for carnal reasons, but it does say that he loved Esau. And so I have no doubt that it's a very heaviness and grief in his heart. Um, The um, reality, I think, as he sees it, that Esau is not going to have eternal life. And so, as I said, every Christian struggles with this. We have people that we love who have rejected Christ, And for them, we pray without ceasing. 
We do not know who God's elect are, and we don't have the insight that was specifically given to Isaac or to Abraham. Um, We do not know who the elect are, so we continue to pray for them because God has given us hope in his word that he says that we would take, um, that his word would not return to him void. So we can appreciate that if we preach the gospel to them and we pray for them, we have a hope that God may yet choose them unto salvation, that maybe he has already chose them, but it simply has not manifested itself in their lives. And so we continue to pray for their salvation with that hope that God's word would not return void as he said it would not, and therefore God will at some point in their life, perhaps after we've gone to the grave, he may yet quicken them. And that's a wonderful hope that we have, but again, it's a burden until we see that manifest itself in their lives. So Here in Genesis chapter 28, with respect to the taking of a wife, we note that three times it says that Jacob is to take a wife from his mother's family. We see it in verse 2 that it's referred to as his mother's father and his mother's brother. And then in verse 5, it talks about, again, his mother's brother. So God is trying to make a point here about the people from whence the bride is to be taken from. Now, in Scripture, we know that a woman typically represents the bride of Christ. And so we can make inference here that Jacob is to take his wife from amongst the bride of Christ, from amongst the church, from amongst believers, from amongst Christians. He is specifically charged not to take his wife from amongst the daughters, plural, of Canaan. He is not to take himself a wife from amongst the worldly pagan people, from amongst the people that embrace false religions, again, it's plural, daughters, or false gods. And so, again, it's just another affirmation of what we talked about in the past about not being unequally yoked together. We are to take a spouse from amongst other Christians. And so we appreciate here that Jacob obeys his father and his mother. It specifically says that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother, which is another way to say that he honored his father and his mother, consistent with one of the commandments of God that later shows up in the book of Exodus. And he does so with a benefit that his days might be long upon the land which the Lord his God had given him. That's Exodus 20:12. And so he was going to, or uh, was sent to Paden Aram to uh, take a wife from amongst his mother's household. Now, something else we should appreciate here when we consider um, in principle what is set before us, and that is it is the father who chooses a wife for his son. Now, we don't see that all throughout Scripture, but in general, the principles are set for us early on in Scripture, and those are the ones that really apply throughout um, the Bible, the ones ones that should be honored. So we see that the father chooses a wife for his son. And the Lord tells us in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 14, that a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. So we should appreciate that if God has chosen a spouse for you, meaning that you sought his counsel and you asked him to do that for you, and he did that for you, that he has given you a prudent wife, and that is truly a blessing from the Lord. We see this first in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 with respect to Adam and Eve, and we also see it with respect to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, in Adam's case, Eve, we know, was specifically made from Adam and chosen for Adam by God and presented to Adam by God. 
In Isaac's case, we saw that his father sent his servant, which we saw typified the Holy Ghost, to select a wife for him. And we saw God's hand in that every step of the way where conditions were set forth by how he would find the wife, by how he would choose a wife. And uh, Rebecca met every one of those conditions. And so she became the bride of Isaac. Clearly, it was orchestrated and set up by our sovereign God. Now, with respect to what we see Esau do here, we see that he chooses his own wives, plural, failing to understand the most basic principle that a marriage is defined by one man and one woman makes one marriage. And so here he is uh, misunderstanding some of the most basic things that his parents have in mind with respect to the gospel. He thinks it will please his parents if he chooses a wife from one of um, Ishmael's daughters. And so he chooses a wife from amongst a people who in principle have been excluded from the blessings of God. And he should know that. He should know that Abraham sent Ishmael away. So in principle, she, he should appreciate that um, what he's doing would in fact not please his parents because it's a, a basic violation of the gospel of taking a wife from amongst God's people, God's chosen people. Um, now, I keep trying to qualify what I'm saying here about using the term in principle because God uses principles to teach us basic biblical doctrines of many things, but in this case, he's teaching us about the doctrine of election here. I'm not saying that at no point throughout history that God never saved somebody who was an Ishmaelite or somebody who was an Edomite, but that simply here he's using these people's lives in an allegorical sense to teach us basic gospel truths. We know that Ruth is an example of somebody who God grafted into the blessings of Christ, uh, even though as a Moabite, she had been prohibited from the congregation of the um, Israelites. But God used the, used the law, he used grace, and she was grafted in. So consistent with this idea that the father chooses the bride for the son, we can appreciate what Christ says of himself regarding his people and his bride. In John chapter 6, verse 37, we read, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me. And verse 38 and 39 of John chapter 6, he read, we read, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that all which... He hath given me, I should lose nothing and should raise it up the last day. In John 6, 44, same concept. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we can appreciate here with respect to those that are Christ, those that are his bride, are drawn by the Father and given to his Son. In John 15, 16, the Lord says, respecting the disciples in particular and the saints in general, he says, quote, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. But I don't want us to trip over that because he already said that he and the Father are one and he always does his Father's will. So I put that into the same category as it's the Father choosing the bride for the Son. So we can appreciate that the bride of Christ is a people given to Christ by God the Father, chosen by the Father in Christ from before the foundation of the world, but not without cost. 
people chosen by the Father and Christ before the foundation of the world, but not without cost. And that brings us to the next point I want to share this morning is that we appreciate that the Son is sent by the Father to a particular people to take a bride. And so we see that Jacob is sent by his father Isaac to Paden Aaron to take a wife from amongst his mother's people. Four times in this section does the Lord tell us that the son is to go to Paden Aram. We see that in verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. I think God's trying to tell us something here that he's to go to Paden Aram. Paden Aram in the Hebrew means, quote, their ransom is high. Their ransom is high. So he's supposed to go to Paden Aram to take a wife from thence. Now, if you read ahead in your Bible, you're going to know, you'll find that Jacob is going to serve many years for his bride. He, who is the heir of all his father's possessions, which he has yet to receive, is going to personally pay a heavy price for his bride. It's interesting to note later in Genesis 28 that Jacob travels to Paden Aram by quite humble means. Though he's heir of all things, he's in possession of only one thing the scripture tells us. It appears as though he goes with nothing but the shirt on his back and a bottle of oil, which I hope we can appreciate represents the Holy Spirit. Now, what does oil often represent in the Bible? I just said that, um, the Holy Spirit, I'm getting ahead of myself. What does he do with the um, oil? He anoints a stone, and there's no mention of any other personal articles. And next week, Lord willing, we'll develop what took place there and what that was all represented of. So, but nevertheless, what we can appreciate here is that Jacob is a type of Christ, and he travels from the glory of his father's house to take a bride from a place named their ransom is high. John chapter 17, verse 5, tells us that Jesus Christ stepped out of the glory he had with the Father. And then in terms of going to a place that was far away, we read in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, that speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was a great condensation, condensation for Christ, who is God, to set aside his glory and take on flesh. That is the distance, the great distance that Christ traveled when he took on the form of the flesh. He stepped out of glory and took on the form of the flesh, which he did so that he would give his life a ransom for many. It was his death on the cross that ransomed the many who are his bride. But again, we shouldn't have to repeat this or say this, but there is one bride for Christ. However, it is comprised of many people. It is comprised of people that are chosen out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9 tells us that. It is a people that are chosen out of, meaning it's not including everybody, but people out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The Lord shares this with us to help us appreciate that Jacob is going to serve a total of 14 years for his two wives. Now, I think we can appreciate that these two women represent 
different things, although they are both going to be his wife, wives. One represents the Old Testament body of believers, while the other represents the New Testament body of believers, both of which represent the singular bride of Christ. For again, there is but one bride of Christ, which is the church. Jacob will first serve seven years for Leah. She represents the church after the cross of Christ. Jacob will serve for her before he goes in unto her and bears fruit. And together between them, they will bear much fruit as Christ does after the cross. After serving for Leah, Jacob will then serve seven years for Rachel. She represents the church before the cross because Jacob will go in unto her before he finishes serving seven years for Rachel. She represents the church before the cross because Jacob will go in unto her before he finishes the seven years of service, and they do not bear much fruit. Now, Lord willing, we'll be able to develop this a little bit more when we get to chapter 29 and chapter 30. But suffice it to say for now that generally speaking, the church includes Gentiles and Jews, and in like manner, Jacob lies with Leah and Rachel at the same time and bears fruit um, at the same time, more with one than the other. With respect to the church in the world, what we see is that Christ has a relationship with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and many other people, mostly Jews, before he goes to the cross. Christ says that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So obviously they are alive in glory, and they are said to be alive by Christ before Christ went to the cross. He has a relationship with them in point of time before the ransom is paid. It is after the cross that the church bears much fruit to include mostly Gentiles. Um, But again, we remind ourselves that the Gentiles actually preceded the Israelites. From Adam to Abraham, they were all Gentiles, and we are reminded of that in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was called, quote, while uncircumcised. That's Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. In the broadest context here, we know that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the efficacy of which was applied to people both before and after the cross, a people ransomed by Christ. Jacob here is a type of Christ who will serve many years for his bride, and he will pay a heavy price. Now, for our last consideration this morning, we see in verse 3 that his father Isaac sends Jacob to Paden Aram. When he does that, he confers God's blessing upon him, that God Almighty will bless him, and make him fruitful, and multiply him, and, in particular, that he will be a, quote, multitude of people. He will be a multitude of people. Now, I can see how somebody might be fruitful and multiply, how a multitude of people will come out of them, how a nation singular, as in Genesis 25:33, might come out of them, but I cannot see how one person can be a multitude of people, unless Christ himself is in view. Because in the context of the church, Christ himself can be a multitude of people. The church is said to be the body of Christ, 
which we know is comprised of a multitude of people. So here, in this blessing, it's an allusion to Christ, the church of the living God. We're going to see this come to fruition um, in verses, let's say, from 10 through 18. It's very interesting what takes place there, and we'll see this come to fruition there. And I'll just give you a teaser where multiple stones become one stone. So that's what I'm alluding to here. We see, again, in verses 4 and 13, which makes a reference to Christ, and so we know that Christ is in view here because the promise that he's conferring upon him is to, quote, thee and thy seed. And we've seen that in the past, that when the promise is just to thy seed, he's speaking of national Israel, but when it's to thee and thy seed, Galatians 3.16 tells us that what's in view there is Christ himself. So without developing this now, we should appreciate that the name Jacob is and oftentimes used in Scripture as a synonym for Christ, as is the, nation, is, is the name Israel, which is another one of Jacob's names. So sometimes when you're reading in the Scripture promises to Jacob and promises to Israel, you're speaking about Christ. They are synonyms on, depending on the context. So we see in verse 4 that the blessing of Abraham is conferred upon Jacob. It's not Abraham's blessing but the blessing of Abraham. It's the blessing that Abraham received from God, which is Christ, which is eternal life, and that is to inherit the new heaven and the new earth. To help us appreciate this here, we also see in verse 4 that Jacob is said to inherit the land which God gave to Abraham, which would also be the land that God gave to Isaac. In Hebrews 11.9, it tells us that they were, quote, heirs of the same promise. So the promise that God um, made to Abraham is the same promise that he made to Isaac. It's the same promise that he made to Jacob. And so if you are myopic and are only thinking of a piece of real estate in the uh, Middle East, you should appreciate that none of them ever received the promise. Jacob, we know, dies in Egypt. You can read about that in Genesis 49:33 and Acts chapter 7 verse 15. They never received the promise, and yet God made them a promise. And so we should appreciate that something further is in view here. Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16, and I'll read that, Hebrews 11:13 through 16. We read, "All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them." and embrace them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out of, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Jacob could have gone back to the, quote, promised land, but he stayed and he died in Egypt. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. God has prepared for them a city. Now, what do we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They all lived in tents. <laughs> they did not live in a city, and Jacob is going to buy a plot of land. Later, we'll see that, and he's going to get himself a little bit of trouble as soon as he starts to sink roots down on this earth. It always was heavenly, heavenward was the promise. Hebrews 11.10 says that it is a city with foundations that God has prepared. It's a heavenly city, and we appreciate and understand this to be the heavenly Jerusalem. That's Hebrews 12.22. It uses that exact term, heavenly 
Jerusalem. Which, tying this all together, and you'll read this again in Hebrews uh, 12.22, it's speaking of the bride of Christ, those that were ransomed by Christ. Our deacon read for us Revelation 21, um, 9 through 11, and I'll read that. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. He's going to show John the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the, quote, holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. The heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and spoken of elsewhere, that is the bride of Christ. And it bears God's glory. Just as Abraham... Isaac and Jacob understood that their inheritance was not here, not on the earth, but in Christ, so too should we. We should everly, ever be heavenly-minded looking for the new Jerusalem to come, the Christ's bride of which we are a part of, and think upon those things. And so to reiterate what I said about not thinking of a piece of real estate, we should appreciate that the war going on in Israel right now is not a turf war. The Hamas have clearly stated that in their um, charter. Their goal is to kill Jews. It's not about reclaiming any particular land. So it's a war against the people that God has chosen to use to manifest himself to the people of the world. It's a war against those that claim to know the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Ultimately, it's a war against God, and so the brutality we should appreciate is really spiritually motivated. Ultimately, it's a war against God and is representative of the spiritual war against the church. It's representative of the spiritual war against God. So it's important for us to be mindful that our hope is ever heavenward in Christ, for it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, as we move through Genesis, we will see that Jacob will receive Christ. You're going to find it. You'll see a change in the way he starts to um, um, relate himself with Christ and with God and how he looks for Christ to lead him instead of him um, trying to manipulate events towards his advantage. We're going to see that take place, but we should appreciate that even from before to after he receives Christ, that his life is going to be on a bumpy road. And so it is for most of the saints. Your life is going to be kind of bumpy because the Lord is ever teaching us to look to him for all things. He's ever teaching us to trust in him for all things. He's ever teaching us to stop doing what Abraham uh, and uh, Sarah did, what Isaac and Rebecca did, and what Jacob did, where we try to manipulate events thinking we are going to help God or thinking that we are operating um, with an appreciation of God's will and what he wants done in our lives and try to help things along, we will learn that lesson. And it's a very long lesson, and it requires um, that we go down a bumpy road where we trip and fall and stumble, and yet God picks us, picks us up to teach us uh, those truths. Jacob will learn, as we all should learn, that God will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And he will shepherd us every step of the way, just like we'll see that in Jacob's life. So we should be looking for that even now. Uh, as things have worked out in Jacob's life, we can see that a sovereign God has brought to pass all of the promises already that he has promised Jacob. Our 
many of the promises that he has ordained for Jacob. He's already got him pointed in the right direction. He's conferred upon him the blessings. And so God is uh, helping us to appreciate that Jacob is a chosen vessel of honor for him. But he's going to take a few turns on the potter's wheel, and the Lord will uh, manifest himself in this life. He will shepherd Jacob every step of the way, just as he does us. For we appreciate what it says in Hebrews 12, too, that he is the author and finisher of our faith. And he will see that we get to glory. Amen. Amen.